podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome to episode number 17 of the Danny Button Fight Show. I'm your host, Sai. Welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. Also, we, uh, we're going to be talking all sorts of uh, MMA, boxing, classic fights today. There's still not a great deal of, uh, of current stuff going on in the fighting world, but uh, we will have a little, we'll talk about uh, the recent UFC card which was announced uh, before we get going. But uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. As usual, all our shows are available at Ace Podcast Nation, uh, youtube.com slash Ace Podcast Nation. Please subscribe. That's the best way to get all the shows first and also the best way to support the channel. And uh, the audio versions are available at all your usual podcasting platforms and apps. And uh, yeah, we have new live shows every Monday and Friday. Monday is our football show, the Andy Campbell Show. Uh, this coming Monday, we're hoping to have uh, former Wales international West Ham Cardiff defender Mr. Daniel Gabadon join us, as well as uh, we have a live show every Friday with myself and stand-up comedian Ballistic Barry Phillips, which is a, an adult-only, light-hearted look at the world, parenting, and uh, everything in between. So if you need something just to kick back with a beer on a Friday night and relax, that's uh, I highly recommend. It's very fun. Uh, we've also got a plenty of uh, other new shows coming on Sunday. We have a, a show with top MMA coach Richard Shaw, uh, who will be joining. He joined me for a chat about all things MMA and answered some questions, sent them with the people, which was a, a lot of fun. Very knowledgeable chap, a very friendly chap. So that was good fun. That's out Sunday, uh, Thursday. So the day after this comes out, uh, we also have our unscripted and uncensored episode number fourteen with uh, boxing media personality uh, Ben Doherty. Or, I always pronounce his name wrong. I think it's Doherty, but Ben uh, Ben Doherty will go with, uh, who's uh, going to be a lot of fun. He answered all the people's questions. And I've got to say, his uh, boxing knowledge is massively impressive. He's like an encyclopedia of uh, just dates and, and information. It was very impressive to witness in, uh, in person. So... Uh, Without further ado, I will introduce you to uh, my co-host, former Cage Warriors champion, UK MMA legend, pioneer, coach, yeah, sure right, <laughs> Mr. Danny Button. Welcome, my friend. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, yeah, all good. All right, mate. All discombobulated because we're doing we're recording this on a Tuesday, which is a bit, bit, uh, bit new because obviously we've done it on a Sunday mm. every week for. Uh, and uh, so it's all a bit strange, and we're doing it early, and it's all, it's all, it's all over the shop. But uh, way out of sync from what we're used to. Plenty to talk about. Yes, yeah, yeah. just going with something new. But um, just before we get into all the classic, the classic stuff, um, obviously UFC announced uh, that uh, was it was UFC two four nine, I think it is. Uh, it's going ahead. Is it two four nine or two four seven? Two four nine, I think. Uh, it's going ahead. And what a card. Uh, 9th of May 
It'll be obviously with no fans, no uh, no audience. But the full card is, and this is about as insane a card as I've, I've ever seen. Um, you could tell they've been, you know, itching to put on a card. Uh, so the full main card is Verdum versus uh, Aloynik, uh, Esparza versus Waterson, Uriah Hall versus Jacare, uh, Cerrone versus Pettis, uh, Stevens versus Qatar, Nganu versus uh, Rosenstruck, Sahudu versus Cruz, and Ferguson versus Gaethje. What do you make of that, my friend? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a fun-packed event. Um, you know, it is a big shame that they're going ahead with no crowd because I think they do add to the atmospherics of it all. Um, but yeah, that that they are itching to get back, aren't they? Yeah, they are, and I think you know they've been they've had to cancel a few cards, and obviously Dana White was working hard to not cancel those cards. He was being very bullish about it all. Yeah, but yeah. That card, I I don't remember many cards being that loaded ever. Mm. Um, you know, even when they've had these kind of super cards, it's usually just the main two or three fights, which are really, really, you know, strong kind of super fights. And then the lower cards will maybe have a couple of sleepers on it. But yeah, it's very rare you'll get a card where li- literally every fight is kind of like a good, just good matchups, really, really good matchups. Match. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's not about just the, you know the size of the names; it is about them getting those matchups right, and then ones are, each one should be fireworks. Indeed, and I think one of the points someone made to me, uh, I think it was on Instagram, uh, they said, if you look at the card, really any of those fights could realistically main event either a pay per view or. Um, like a like a Fox or whatever. It's not Fox yeah. now, is it? Like or like the ESPN TV shows, which mm-hmm. they do in between the pay per views. And when mm. you look at it like that, and I looked through the card, and I was like, oh yeah, they could, because like the Ngannou fight, you know, Ngannou's main event had pay per views. Same yeah. with Cejudo and Dominic Cruz. You got Ferguson, Gaethje, uh, Cerrone. You know, is just coming off the back of main event in with McGregor, uh, yeah. Uriah Hall. Uh, Michelle Watson, you know, they're all big names. F- uh, Fidizio, uh, Fadum. Fadum. You know, it's, uh, it's just crazy. Um, mm. Any fights there which kind of really stick out for you that you think, oof, that's going to be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, to me, I really like the idea of that, uh, seeing that Qatar fight again. You know, he's got, you know, really good boxing. And Jerry Stevens, you know, he's, he's an all action stylist as well. Um, I'm really interested to see Cruz fight against Hudo. Uh, I think that's a really interesting matchup. Very, very different uh, uh, body compositions there. Um, uh, you know, it's hard to predict how that's that's even going to steer as a stylistic fight. I, I really don't know how that's going to be. Um, and of course, you know, you know, the big one, Tony Ferguson against Gaethje. I mean, that, that's got potential to be more exciting than, than uh, Ferguson's original matchup with Khabib. I mean, these two just seem to have cardio for days and fearless. Um, I and mean, you could argue that both got a screw loose somewhere, not in a disrespectful yeah. manner, but in the sense of their, their, their courageousness. I mean, that, that that's like a particle collider <laughs> that is clashing together. Um, a really hard one to predict again, both very, very durable, both, both fearless. And, um, and, and they just let it all hang out from, from the click of the bell. Very, very exciting. But like you say, all, be... all the other ones are good. But that they're the three ones that 
straight away excited, you know, my mindset that they don't want to, I want to watch all of them with absolute interest, but they're the three that really excited me. Um, I wasn't sure Dominic Cruz was ever going to fight again, to be honest. Um, kind of no, surprised to no. see him on the card again. Um, you know, just hope he's not rusty because um, he does seem timing based. He's, he's a sharp style fighter and footwork orientated fighter. I hope that he don't have the rust and he can sort of get his flow early on because that'll be a, a really interesting bout for me. Yeah, I think the one advantage uh, is obviously I don't think Cejudo's fought for uh, for quite a while, so at least mm. you know one's not coming in um, kind of sharp and having fought recently. Um, yeah, I gotta say I wondered uh, same. Re- I think I said to you whilst I was looking forward to a Gaethje McGregor fight, um, I felt that I didn't see McGregor taking it because I felt like it was too big a risk. If he mm. wants that Khabib rematch, I yeah. didn't think I couldn't see him taking a risk on a fighter like Ferguson or yeah. Gaethje unless Dana White said you have to beat Ferguson if you want to face yes. uh, Khabib again. Yeah, I just didn't see him taking that fight because I felt like Gaethje mm. is capable of really, you know, on any given night beating anyone. Uh, yes, and I kind of do think it is a bit of a risk for Ferguson. Um, you know, he doesn't. He's, you know, he don't care. He's, uh, he'll fight anyone. I get that, but like he's finally was getting his title shot, and you know, if he loses to Gaethje, he ain't getting that title shot. And then suddenly mm. he'll be effectively third in the queue because you'd think Gaethje would have Khabib next. Yeah. Then I would assume Connor is probably going to get Khabib left next, or assuming Khabib beat Gaethje. You'd assume Connor's going to get the next shot after that. I mean, I, yeah, they could do. You know, the I think the Gaethje Ferguson winner, the winner could fight face Khabib, and the loser could face yeah. Connor. I guess, but yeah, it's a risk. Yeah, for I mean, Ferguson, uh, for sure. Yeah, I, for me, Gaethje and Ferguson. Um, you know, that they're two people that are really going to run it at Khabib, and if Khabib can't get early control of them could find himself getting pushed into deep water, you know, being proper rocked on the feet for the first time or, or maybe pushing his cardio to a point where he, where he just can't keep controlling. Um, that, that, they're both going to fight to exhaustion. They're used to doing it. He ain't used to being pushed and getting tired. He's always controlled every fighter. But these are two fighters that if you don't get control of them, you're, you're going to be into a, a, a physical war, an absolute physical war of nutrition as well. Um Absolutely interesting for me, either of them two fighting Khabib. Which is the other thing is, I, I think both Ferguson and Gaethje are both probably stronger than Connor um, on the floor and in the. I agree. Kind of, mm. So that, that's yeah. another aspect to it. Obviously, I think Connor's a lot better, by the way, uh, in defense on the floor and grappling and wrestling than people give him credit for. You know, he's no. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, He's no rookie, but it's not his you know, his main strength. Um, yeah. And as we've discussed numerous times, like Connor didn't, uh, I didn't think he implemented an aggressive enough day, game plan against Khabib on his feet. Um, yeah. Whereas you know Ferguson and Gaethje will both be very, very aggressive. They only know how to yeah. fight that aggressive yeah, yeah. style on their feet. But they can also, you know, uh, particularly Ferguson... Ferguson's very, very, very good, uh, you know, from a jiu-jitsu point of view. Um, mm. 
so he'll be looking to get submissions from the ground. Yeah. He won't mind, you know, we've seen uh, Ferguson get the absolute crap kicked out of him and his face all smashed up in all sorts of ways and still mm. pull out something special, whether a, a submission or a KO or a finish. And yeah, yeah. So he won't be afraid of being mauled by Khabib, uh, Khabib on the floor because he'll still be looking for something uh, yeah. like, from a counter point of view. Yeah, Ferguson could, could could beat Khabib at any time. You know, he could he could put it put it away with a, a funky submission, uh, a a crazy strike from Ingard with the elbows, cause you know, perhaps a, a a fight stopping cut. And and on the feet, you know, he's creative. You know, knees jumping, elbows spinning, elbows. He'll fire it all at Khabib. Um, anything could potentially stop it. I think he has more potential ways of winning than Khabib does. Khabib, there's no secret. Uh, we know what he's going to be doing. We know what he wants each and every time. No one's come up with a plan or, or, or able to match him in his strengths to, to stop it being any other way. Um, the difference with Ferguson is he doesn't care where the fight is. He don't care if he's on his back. He's dangerous. He can finish you with submissions or, or, or strikes off his back. It's not going to bother him. Um, all you will know is that he won't stop working and he won't stop hunting uh, for something to finalise that fight. For, for five rounds, that's, that's that's a big ask of anyone, including the, including the best of Khabib. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I think, to a certain degree, uh, I feel similar about the uh, Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz fight. I feel like mm. Cejudo, Cejudo didn't... Um, he wasn't that convincing in his previous fight. Um, mm. He took a bit of criticism. And, you know, Dominic Cruz, a fit Dominic Cruz, is perfectly capable of, you know, beating most people. Um, yeah. But like you say, it's just whether he's, you know, fully up to speed and how many yeah. rounds he's been able to, particularly with the coronavirus everywhere, you know, how many yeah. rounds have these guys been able to spar in training yeah. and really mm. get into it? I suppose it mm. would depend, you know, when Dominic Cruz was back from his injury uh, you know, back training. Obviously, if he's mm. been training since the start of the year, then he yeah. he would have got um, you know he would have got some uh, some rounds in with people. But it's just whether he's been that back that long. I'm not hundred percent sure how long he has been back. Um, Francis and Garnu fight will be a, an interesting one because you know. After he took that loss, uh, mm. and he he just didn't look the same for a few fights. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he found that winning thread again, and he just looked back to that kind of invincible mm. uh, heavyweight heavyweight beast who just had previously sure. looked like there was no one who was going to stop him. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, really, isn't it? How like the, for a confidence point of view, for these particularly these guys who are who go on like a a tear of just KOing guys in seconds. Yeah. You know, we saw recently with Johnny Walker, looked in unbeatable. There was talk of putting yeah. him up against John Jones and this and that. And then suddenly he lost. And all of a sudden he didn't look unbeatable and he lost yeah. again. Um, yeah. And then yeah. all of a sudden everyone's calling him a, you know, an overhyped fighter and this and that. It's, yeah, because he w it, it, it wasn't that, like he was... Lost he, when you're on a winning streak can, can sure. bring more than I think one the... thing to a halt. I think the problem for him there was he didn't lose 
in a good way. It, 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 he looked terrible. He looked like uh, he, he was really lacking in areas in a big way for, for a UFC stage, let alone looking for a title shot. But, you know, that all got got overlooked because a lot of the fights were quick that he was having. He was looking really convincing. Um, it goes to show, you know, it's either, you know, the, 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 the effect of the placebo for a fighter beginning to perhaps believe they're on hype and believe they're invincible and it makes them all just let it hang out and he was just notching up those wins um, and maybe that placebo is no, no longer in effect for him. Uh, or it might have just been, you know, just the way it goes. You know, the, the fight, fight game's a funny old thing. You know, you stick two fighters together. Um, you know, you could have one, one fighter that's a lot, lot less skillful than another and nine out of ten times, one fighter will win over the other but it only takes that one to show up on the night that matters that can make it look a very different fight. Um, it's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens in the future for his career. He's still really young. That's what he's got in his favour. Got a great body composition. Um, and time will tell whether he's got a great team to hold his hand past this little dip in his career. But I think we're going to see him come back better and stronger, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. I think he's got um, too much talent to just yeah. fade away. But, you know, it has been known also that that first loss and then some fighters don't recover. And yeah. They, it's this not for a lack of talent or a lack of, uh, you know, lack of ability or lack of hard work even. It's, mm. it's just a mental thing. You see it with boxers. Yeah. You see it with cage fighters. It's just once they get knocked out for the first time and even guys who are not on like a, you know, like a brutal... Mm unbeaten tear of KOing people it's just guys who've never been knocked out that first KO it's particularly if it's like a bit of a, a shock or a flash KO or a you know out of the blue yeah it can change the way they view mentally view, view fighting would you agree with mm -hmm. that yeah yeah no I totally agree funny old world the fight game trust me it's um you know you yeah, think it's predictable me. but really not always is but that's the beauty of it, yeah. That's why it's so exciting. And uh, speaking of exciting, uh, the first classic bout we will look at today is uh, Nigel Benn versus Chris Eubank uh, 1 from the 18th of November, 1990. Um, mm. We did another watch party for this. So what I've been doing is on a Sunday morning... Um, on the Ace Podcast Nation pod, uh, Facebook page, so it's facebook.com slash acecastnation, is um, I've been basically, because I've got to, you know, I've got to watch them anyway for the shows. If it's uh, something which is available on YouTube or similar, um, mm. I've been doing a watch party on Facebook, so we had uh, another few good, I think, 100-odd comments, people joining in and watching. Um, we watched the Chris Eubank, Nigel Benn fight, and then we watched the Royce Gracie fight afterwards. Um, so, yeah, guys, if you're free on a Sunday morning, we normally do them around sort of 10 o'clock. Uh, so, obviously, next Sunday we'll be watching uh, Nigel Benn versus Chris Eubank 2. And I forget what we said we were going to watch next on the MMA front, but we'll, we'll come back to that uh, at the end of the show. Um, overall, th uh, thoughts on Chris Eubank versus Nigel Benn 1, my friend? Yeah, I uh, really enjoyed watching it. Um, you know, it's a pretty skillful event between between them both. Very different stylists as well. They both got a very different approach. And um, but the, you know, the big thing 
that made this fight so exciting is really perhaps all the build up to it. Um, you know, perhaps that's what makes the, the fight so exciting. I mean, we, we we come from that era where we knew what their rivalry was all about, and um, and when you're actually living through that rivalry, um, it, it made the fight even more exciting at the times. But I, you know, I absolutely relish looking back at this one. Um, yeah, it's a really really good fight. Just um, I know he was, you know, uh, perhaps uh, more hated Chris Eubank than, than loved back at that time, but I, you know, I just love that character. It, it, it was so so unique, very very good. Yeah, it was interesting. He's, you know, he's an entertainer. You know, if nothing yeah. else, um, Chris yep. Eubank is one of those guys who just would entertain. Um, one yeah. thing which was very obvious to me, particularly as they built up for the first rounds after they did their ring walks, is Nigel Nigel Ben did not like uh, Chris Eubank one bit. No, he had a real he did not. look of hatred in his eyes before that mm. fight. Um, mm. And as I was watching that, because I couldn't remember how the fight had gone or anything like that. Um, I watched it and I thought, is, the, you know, is that going to play into it? Is he going to make a mistake because he's mm. so, uh, you know, he's kind of so wound up and he's so got that, he's taking it personally almost and too emotional. Um, yeah. i got to say, the fight didn't go as I as I had thought it went in my head. Obviously, mm. I was nine at the time, but um, I had remembered it being more in Chris Eubank's favour. Yeah. Yeah, um... I found some of the rounds quite hard to to give a crisp decision on who I think won any of the rounds. To be honest, um, you know, as much as you know, I've been a fighter, um, I'm I'm not a boxing purist. I've always been a fan of boxing, but you know, for that for that fact, you know, we are just fans of it at the end of the day. And um, yeah, to try and judge it was really quite hard. Uh, I think fights are a little bit easier for a fan to watch these days because they'll show up. The, you know, who's got the uh, who's landed the most shots, how many are thrown. They got these computers to throw up all the statistics, but you know, back then um, it was not the case. We don't have have such good technology to to sort of like steer your thoughts on how the re- the fight was really going. So I did find some of the rounds a little bit difficult. Like, oh, which way would I really sway with it? You know, but for for the fan point of view, absolutely enjoyed watching it. Um, every round to me had something in it that threw up a little excitement. Certainly not the best fight in the world either, but um, it certainly weren't boring to watch. I quite enjoyed it. No, so um, so we'll briefly kind of go through each round. Um, yeah. Obviously, it didn't go the full. It's our first boxing uh, match, which hasn't gone the full, the full twelve. Sure. Um, so round one, uh, what did you, what did you make of it? Well, uh, even before the round one, I was I was already getting on the edge of my seat just with the way Chris Eubanks swaggers over to Nigel Ben, and he puts his glove out, and, and Nigel Ben smacks his hand down. Uh, this guy's got got malice, and I, I, I mean, got my Bob watched this back when I was a young lad as well, um, and sort of my memories were of it that Ben comes out like a bull in a china shop, and that was what I was expecting, but it wasn't quite the case. He did stalk uh, Eubanks, uh, but was missing a lot, and both Eubanks was missing a lot as well. I noticed in the first round, and my first observation was uh, is how tall Eubanks always stays. He always stays up quite tall. The chin not overly tucked, certainly weren't up by any stretch, but because of his straight posture, you know, it, it always looks like his chin might be accessible, but always keeps himself quite loose. It's very, very distance aware um, type of fighter. 
And I think Eubanks has got like a karate background, if, I, if I'm right. And maybe that's why we're seeing this slightly more upright, this straight back style. But the other observation was really how low you, um, Nigel Ben would go. He'd go so low. He's almost ducking under the waistline, um, which you can only but imagine made him a hard target to hit. So I did notice a lot of misses. Um, Nigel Ben was a lot more composed than I thought he was in my first hindsight thought of how this fight went. Um, but overall, if I was forced to give it to anyone, like I say, you know, I, I may well be getting this wrong. But I thought Eubanks might have edged it on a little bit, a little bit more precise in the middle of the rounds. Um, but really could have gone either way. I mean, Nigel Ben was the one pushing Chris Eubank back. Uh, I just felt like Chris Eubank was doing nicer looking flurries that seemed to be a little bit more effective. Um, I just saw Ben missing a lot for me. See, that's um, that's quite interesting because I had I gave the first round to Nigel Ben simply because I felt like uh, he was pushing Eubank back. I felt like Eubank was more... Uh, concerned with being elusive and, and, and making sure he didn't get connected with any of these early mm. big shots. And to be fair, um, he did it very, very well. He, yeah. Chris Eubank, um, say what you will about his, you know, his, his punching and his record or his career, whether you like him, you hate him, whatever. Mm. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a boxer trying not to get hit, yeah. he is one of the very best. Um, yeah. It's very difficult to lay a glove on. But mm. yeah, like you say, because he's so tall, it does seem like his chin's there. But people yeah. find it very difficult to hit him. Um, yeah, yeah. And, like and one of the things as well, oh sorry, we crossed it over each other here a little bit. Sorry. Um, the other thing is, is well, whenever a shot did reach the head of Eubanks, he would kind of turn his head in the direction it come from. So if it was a if it was a left hook, he would look to his right, right on the point of impact. So he really knew how to ride out punches that did get through. Mm. Um, obviously got really, really acute um, with re reactions, basically. Uh, whether that's, you could say that's a skill set thing or an instinctual thing, call it what you will. But nevertheless, it, it, it saved him because we all know Nigel Penn was a big banger, um, really had mean intentions. But um, yeah, that, that was one thing that impressed me. But it almost turned into an a MMA match at one point because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, coming in so low with that head, Nigel Ben, he ended up getting his head stuck right underneath the arm of uh, Chris Eubanks and, and lift him up in the air. I thought I was going to see a body slam going down. Hmm. Yeah, Eubanks, um, his footwork is so, so crisp. Mm. He's so light on his feet and he's he's circling uh, Nigel Ben all the time, even yeah. though Ben's the one who's kind of pushing forward, trying to, you know, trying to really get into it. Eubanks mm. is just really, he's never still, he's never in the same place for too long. Yeah, yeah. And it's a big part of why... Um, and yeah, like you said, Nigel Ben was so low down a lot of the time. Um, yeah. Early on in the in the round, uh, Chris Eubank did try and hit a couple of ha uh, heavier shots uh, as yeah. he kind of they sort of clinched up, and then Nigel Ben was very low, and he tried to yeah. sort of hit him, but he didn't really connect. Um, mm. And yeah, I think it was a pretty even round, I suppose. I just felt early on in the fight, I felt like um, Chris Eubank wasn't quite finding his rhythm. With his punches, I felt like his footwork and his body uh, movement, his head movement, I thought they were outstanding. Um, yeah. But I felt like his punches weren't quite finding, uh, yeah. the, finding the spot. And maybe he wasn't quite finding his rhythm. Whereas mm, Nigel mm. Ben, possibly because he's a bit more frenetic and a bit more, you know, he's really pushing forward. So he seems like even when he's not connecting and he hasn't got his rhythm, 
he still yeah. seems like he's being quite attacking and getting somewhere because he's sure. pushing forward. Whereas yeah, I mean that, is I, sitting back a bit further. I tried not to get caught up too much in that because um, I know that I, that happens to me. Um, sometimes the, the the person being aggressive is the person I actually cast my eye on, and the counter punches of the person that is footworking back, it could get overlooked a little bit. And I tried not to do that. And I, I watched back that first round several times to try to really judge, you know, which way round it. And, and I still, you know, I just felt like, you know, Eubank was just perhaps just being, you know, landed a little bit more. Um, he, everything that he was throwing had a real, real thought process behind it. Um, Nigel Ben for me was missing a little bit. But yeah, you're you're right. I you know, you do find yourself um, falling into habit of watching Ben because you know he looks like he, he's stalking and he's being predatorial. Um, you know, but boxing can't be won on just you know footworking in, in a way where you're getting the fighter to the edge. You know, you still got to be landing your shots more often. Um, and I didn't feel that was the case in that round. But you know, who knows? You know, it'd be interesting to get a boxing purist's point of view. Um, on that, yeah, to be well, fair. I'm hoping um, we'll have uh, Ben Doherty, who I uh, mentioned earlier. I'm hoping he's going to mm. uh, join us, uh, particularly when we get back into live sport. I'm hoping yeah. to get him on to to cover some of the boxing with us. But I'm hoping also to maybe get him on for some bo- for some of these, uh, even if he does just join us for the kind of this part with the boxing. Sure. Because it just gives a different uh, different opinion, different view of looking at things. Uh, yeah. He's going to look at it from a from a boxing point of view, whereas you're looking at it from a a striking point of view and a bot, you know, and a movement point of view, but mm. from an MMA background. Yeah. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see if there's a difference when mm. you get someone who's looking at it from completely from a boxing point of view. Sure. Um, round two, uh, straight away in the first couple of minutes, we have like a couple of headlocks um, where they've yeah. got a clinching and Nigel Benz solo. I thought Eubank mm. again. Uh, head movement and footwork just unbelievable. Um, yeah. But Nigel Benz starting to land a few more shots in this second round, and also yeah. um, I noticed that in one of the clinches, I think about midway through, uh, Eubank gets turned around in the clinch, so he's got his back to Nigel Benz, and uh, yeah. Nigel Benz was not did not mind giving him a nice jab, a uh, nice dig in the kidneys. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Just to let him know he was there, and then literally yeah. about thirty seconds later, right at the end of the round, actually, it's just in the last minute of the round, uh, all that happened. Um, just after that little dig, I think it riles Eubank up a bit, and he yeah. comes forward, and uh, Nigel Ben hits him with a big right cross. I think it was a right cross. Yeah. Um, and it actually connects, and then yeah. Eubank gets finishes off the round very, very aggressively. Um, and I think that culminated from the kind of the kidney blow and then mm. getting hit straight after that yeah. he almost, maybe it woke him up a bit, maybe it irritated him a bit. I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah. What, uh, what did you well, make of round two? I thought Yeah, yeah, round two. Round two. Um, I think Eubanks, to me, is uh, you know got a high IQ in terms of what's going on around when it's ha- happening live. And I think he assessed what was happening in that first round. Um I think knowing the, the quite extreme head movements that Nigel Ben was bringing by bringing his head down as low as he did, looping it left and right as he was, was making him quite a hard target. And to punish that movement, I think that's why you saw him leaning on his head a lot. Um, 
And so numerous times you see him blocking Nigel Benn's head down. So that does two things. You know, it might put him off from the idea of perhaps moving his head in that fashion to make himself elusive because it's actually quite tiring to have your head blocked down like that. So I think, you know, uh, Chris Eubanks was thinking, OK, let's block his head down. Let's punish him for that type of defence and also, you know, tire him out because you know, you're carrying the, that person's weight on the back of your neck. All your back muscles have to come into play, your leg muscles to stop being collapsed to the floor. Um, but you did see Ben get more accurate um, with his shots in this round. Um, his pressure was beginning to show a little bit. Um, and, yeah, you did see Ben go round to the back again because the head was being blocked down. Ben then tried to counter it by rising his head up and going round towards the, the rear of Chris Eubanks. Um, and, yeah, you had a nice little flurry where uh, Eubanks was finishing the round really strong. Um, and, again, this makes this round really hard to uh, to judge again. But for me, um, I would still uh, I would edge this for for, for Ben just because the, the rest of the round to me was in his favour. Yes, Chris Eubanks and better. So don't tell me you got this the other way around. <laughs> I did, yeah, I had Eubanks in this one, but um, that I think that That's was mainly. Um, I had it about even, um, and then just yeah. rewatching it just now, I changed my mind and I gave it to Eubanks, right. and I think that was mainly because of the amount of punches he landed. In that last, in that end, um, yeah, yeah, and again, and, this is you know, where we, we, we make that. I make that mistake in MMA. I think we discussed it a few weeks back, mm. whereby when one fighter finishes the round, yeah, uh, in that last forty-five seconds to a minute, if he finishes one fighter finishes particularly strongly or finishes yeah. in mount and ground and pound, sure, that sometimes can be enough to take the rounds in the eyes of the mm. judges. Yeah, really, they could have been dominated for the two minutes prior. In a sure. different way. Yeah, I think, uh, or I'd like to think there's a, a misconception. I mean, uh, a really yes. good judge right. shouldn't be doing that. They should be judging the entirety of the round. Um, I'm, I, I'm sure they'll have their statistics written down of what's happened in the round on a piece of paper. And okay, it's statistically, they're, they're dead even and one guy finished on a flurry. Yeah, okay, that's going to give it the, the sway either way. Um, but for me, I just felt like Nodja Ben was scoring looking more effective uh, than Chris Eubank. Um, and yeah, Eubank's finished strong. And yeah, maybe as a big boxing judge, they might give it to Eubank because of that. But I'm trying to take in the, the whole around on what I feel. My gut yeah, instinct yeah. was to go with Ben on that one. But it, like I said at the beginning of this, this, I found some of the rounds very difficult to score. Yeah, it is, it's almost impossible. Um, mm. It's so close. Um, yeah. Round three... I definitely add for Nigel Ben. Um, yeah. Particularly the, I just felt like, although Eubank hit some lovely shots in this round, I felt mm. like new, uh, Nigel Ben really found his rhythm in round three. Really yeah. started to to work those shots. He still, is that the way he's avoiding Eubank's jab, um, mm. and his combinations is to basically go down on his haunches, and just yeah. move from side. It's bizarre to watch. Um, yeah. And you're kind of waiting for Eubank to, to just steady himself and kind of punch downwards instead of mm. still going for combinations. But, yeah, uh, yeah. if I thought round three was definitely uh, Nigel Benz. What about you? Yeah, um, I thought, you know, pretty similar to yourself. Um, you know, Eubanks did have singular successes with some of his shots. Um, but, but Ben kind of managed to get him in front of him a, a little bit more. Um, Eubanks wasn't footworking quite so fluently as he did in the previous two rounds. 
um, had his hands lower as well in retraction mm. and was kind of like going toe heel, toe heel as he retracted back, which kind of expressed a little bit of tiredness, which kind of strange to see so early on because um, I can't say that that was the case in some of the latter rounds. Um, but his guard just dropped a little bit more. Um, his footwork weren't looking so pretty. He's looking heavier. Um, and Nigel Ben was, yeah, was just looking looking like he was just having the better of it steadily all the way through. Yeah, um, I would have given that one to Ben. Yeah, and I felt like actually this round and the next round, Nigel Ben really stepped it up a bit. Um, I thought yeah. his work rate was higher. His yeah. footwork became a lot better. And what you found is where he was keeping his aggression, but his his head movement and his footwork was so good and his work rate with his hands, his, mm. his guard was higher. Everything was yeah. like a higher intensity. Uh, and what yeah. you found then is Eubank was suddenly seemed to be stood in front of him a lot more. Uh, yeah. Whereas yeah. those early rounds, Eubank had been circling and moving and ducking and diving. Um, and I felt like that was a testament to how well uh, Nigel Ben upped his intensity in round three sure. and then into round four. I felt like round four was his strongest uh Strongest rounds so far. Yeah, um, I agree. And I felt like Eubank actually struggled a little bit in round four, and it was quite obvious that um, maybe not necessarily like a fight-ending sequence, but it was quite obvious that Eubank now realised, you know, he oof, he was really in a fight. There was one uh, yeah. particular shot in round four where, as he's coming out of a combination, Nigel Byrne hits a like a left, uh, like a left hook to the ribs and it catches mm. uh, Eubank just above his hip, between his hip bone and his rib cage yeah. um, and he visibly not only winces but kind of goes off balance as well and you know yeah we he does staggers doesn't he we've talked about uh, the the you know the the damage that body shots do and funnily enough uh, Ben mentioned the same thing in our show about from a boxing point of view just you know those body shots people don't realize people who've not fought you know in combat sports or martial arts they don't realize how much you know a good uh hook or a good kick to the ribs how much it takes out of you uh yeah you know both in the short term from like losing your breath or a cracked rib or that but then later on into the round or into the fight um what did you make of round four did you see it as nigel benz again yeah yeah um he's sort of, sort of roughing Eubanks up. Eubanks had a, a good flurry at one point, um, but th that's about all that he had was just just one little successful flurry. But that was in the early part. Um, but getting knocked off balance the way he did, covering up, he really shelled up, didn't he? Mm. Um, and also, I noticed a difference in the clinch was uh, Ben was happy to to hit at the body in that clinch. Uh, Eubanks was choosing not to really strike in the clinch. Uh, it, make, it makes you feel that maybe Nigel Ben was a fitter of the two. Or, or just more eager to score every which way he could. But yeah, absolutely. Ben, ben to me, was the one that has having success in the, uh, round four. But do you think um, that was also where Nigel Ben upped his work rate? Um, so he was working more in the clinch compared to maybe in the earlier rounds. He was giving like a half-hearted sort of poke in the ribs, whereas these were um, proper shots in the clinch. I, I, th I think it, was, it probably appeared that way, but I think that he was going at pretty much the similar place that he did in the previous rounds. I just think we see Eubank slow down a little yes, bit. Yeah. So um, it was making Ben look a little more you know, tidy, a little bit more successful. Uh, maybe he did you know, minor, you know, minorly increase his work rate, but not by a lot from the other rounds. I just think because Eubanks wasn't matching him, it, it made it look like he was, uh, you know, doing more than 
perhaps he, he did in the previous rounds. But I feel like his pace was just more steady um, and just wasn't slowing down. It's a little bit like 100-metre sprints. A lot of people think that when so, someone like you put saying Bolt comes on strong at the end, he's, he's picked up a faster pace when quite often it's you know all about relaxation and form. It's just the others are decelerating quicker. I just think we're seeing Chris Eubank decelerate and, uh, and Nigel Ben wasn't. So, so going into round five, uh, I had uh, it three one to Ben, and you had it as two three, three, uh, no, three one to Ben. I had it three, oh, one, three to one to Ben as well. well. Yeah, oh, it was. Okay. Ju it's just a one and two round. We had reverse on who we thought won it. Ah, I see. Okay. So yeah. So round five. What did you make of that? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I've got my glasses on here. Um. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I found um Eubank was um. Yeah, Eubank was getting some some of his accuracy back. I, I noticed that he was getting some more of his single shots uh, going together. weren't doing like massive combinations, but I feel like um, Eubanks was almost getting like a second wind here. Uh, it just looked like he was getting a bit more fire in his boots. I think maybe he'd had a little pep talk in the corner um, and knew maybe things were beginning to change. The tide was beginning to change and he had to kind of meet force on force a little bit. And I felt like um, that he was doing that. And this is another one where I've, you know, I had to look back and look again a couple of times to decide who I thought won it. But I was going to give this one to Eubanks. I felt like he was actually getting Ben to go back a little bit. Yeah, um, he found his footwork again round yep. five straight away. Yeah. And up to the end, and his feet were moving quick. Yeah, he was light on his feet. Um, I felt like he got his left jab really into this in this fifth round. Yeah, uh, he used it a lot. Um, yeah. You could see, I think he he knew that um, his level in round four was not good enough, yeah. uh, whether it be his footwork or his, his general work, because when he came out, he just looked again like Nigel Ben had in the fifth, fourth round. He yeah. looked like he was more intense. And when he yeah. finished the round, he raised his arms to the crowd as if to say, you know, come on. Um, yeah. So I think that tells you that he was happy with, one, how round five had gone, yeah. So I think he was looking for a, for a reaction uh, from sure. himself, or whether you know his crowd was mm. uh, his his camp uh, were looking for a reaction from him. Yeah. Uh, Nigel Ben still hit some shots. Um, it was it's still and even these rounds like round four I gave to, you know we both gave to Nigel Ben comfortably. Yeah. But like you mentioned, Eubank still had a little flurry which connected. And same yeah. with Nigel Ben, you know, there was still yeah. and, points. And that round five as well, it was perhaps the first bit of seeing that eye blow up. So obviously some of those shots got in. Yeah. Um, and I think it was those single jabs that, that maybe started to hit home. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is where you started seeing some started damage. Round and six, he hit some jabs to the eye straight in the early on in round six as well. Yeah. Uh, I think he was struggling to see in round six because um, I felt like, uh, you know, some of these shots were getting in which you would think he would see coming, and he wasn't. So I think this started to really trouble him. Yeah, there was a couple of shots in round six where it it felt like earlier he was swaying or going down low to avoid them when he saw them mm. coming or the combinations coming. And in round six, he felt like he was he was still moving his feet, but he was still you know he, the shots were getting through and his head yeah. was getting snapped back. Um, yeah, he wasn't rounds. coming forward. If you notice no, in this one, that you're, those were... weird body jabs, which I yeah, that's one. I, maybe you can explain it to me. There's one punch which I've never really understood fighters doing is that kind of 
It's like a jab to the to the front of the stomach. It never gets yeah. through, and if it does, it kind of kisses the other fighter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, quite often, this is just when I'm speaking to drift down a little bit as as rounds go on. You know, doing a jab to the body shot. I mean, no body shot's nice, as we just mentioned. And sometimes, you know, throwing a shot down that body, um, you can't just faint to the body. Um, with that, you've got to try and put something in that's going to create a reaction so that, you know, when you do go for that shot again, it can open up some opportunities uh, to the head. Um, I can only presume that this was what he was hoping, into, hoping to do. Um, Eubanks was perhaps making a little bit of a meal of, <laughs> you know, these, these these low blows, as we saw. Well, um, you know, they were low blow in the round six. I, was, I said this in the chat in the, the watch party. Yeah. Um, you look at the reaction to Bernard Hopkins last week when he mm. got hit with a low blow, which wasn't really mm. a low blow. No. It didn't. Um, and he made the meal of it because he was getting passed by yeah. Kalzaki at that point. Whereas Eubank, at the point where he gets hit with the low blow, is starting to really put some hurt on Nigel Ben. He's blowing up his eye, yeah. he's cut his lip. So he's not mm. interested in, you know, um, kind of dragging it out or having a little breather. He wants mm -hmm. to get straight back into it. So, and you can see that it's almost like it clicks with him. Like he's yeah. kind of, like it's all, you know, as if coaches have always will always say to anyone of any age, if you get hit in mm. the in the in the bits, take a minute, you know, yeah. get your bearings, get yourself composed. But he mm -hmm. kind of thinks and thinks, and then he goes, actually, I don't need this. I'm, yeah. I'm going to go and win this fight. And he comes yeah. out and he hits in the rest from the low blow to the end of the round. I would love to know how many left jabs he hits because it's almost like he, if it was a video game, I'd say he's spamming the button where he's just. <laughs> Continue yeah, yeah, yeah. clicking it and clicking it. Sure. Um, um, but did you, did you, some nice body shots in this. He does. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And, and, you know, you've got to wonder how the judges score that. Do you see sort of like done a, like an uppercut hook to, to the body and it had a had a visual effect on um, on Eubanks. You know, I'm surprised Eubanks was able to keep up a, a good pace, but his elbows were really tight against his body after that body shot. So I think, you know, it, it definitely done done some good work going to the body and you can see yeah, Ben was hunting for blow, it. Blow, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, blow. yeah. Um, so, yeah, not, Nigel Ben was getting the success to the body, uh, but Chris Eubanks was getting success to, to that head and bad, you know, that ever worsening eye. Very difficult round yeah, to score sure. overall. Um, um, you know, who did you give that one made, to? I gave um, round six to uh, Eubank. Um, right, yeah, yeah. For the, the overall work. Round six, so, you know, we said at the end of round five, Eubank raised his arms to the crowd. And I yeah. thought that was like a bit of a gesture almost f for himself to yeah. say, no, I'm back now. That was, you know, I had a bad round. Yeah. Um, whereas at the end of round uh, six, uh, Nigel Ben kind of bounced around and did that a little bit. He didn't raise his arms. Sure. He did a similar kind. Of, and I felt like that was him trying to convince himself that he was still in it. Yeah. Do you see what it like? Sure, but then it, I think it worked because at the start of round seven, Nigel Ben came out on fire. He had some really good shots in the clinch, and then yeah. all of a sudden, Eubank hits a nice uppercut. But yeah, uh, it was ben really nice. Hits this it, just after Eubank hits that uppercut in the start of the seventh round, just after a flurry from Nigel Ben. Nigel Ben hits a jab, and I tell you what, the speed of it, yeah, the the speed of it is just incredible. Really snapped it. 
Um, mm. Really, and it, the camera angle, even you know, with these rubbish, not you know, they're not 4K cameras like we're used to these mm. days. They're, um, you know, it's standard definition and non-digital and all this sort of thing. But you can see the cam from the camera angle where it's just above. It like yeah. really showed the speed of the punch. It was impressive. Um, yeah. What did you make of this? Uh, what are we on round seven? Yeah, round seven. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you get you get Eubanks foot working back a little bit, but he's still getting shots through. Um, I just feel that Nigel Ben knows this eye's bad, and um, and just trying to really try to get a hold of this fight is really really gritting. But um, I just think Chris Eubank was just too fresh, too savvy to, to, to be bullied uh, to a point where any of the rounds was going to be potentially stopped. Um, I think this was a race to try to get something really established for Nigel Ben. Um, and you really got a sense of that effort. But, uh, I mean, scoring-wise, this was hard for me. Um, I found my eyes being cast on Nigel Ben because of his efforts to try and establish something conclusive but I felt like he was still getting hit a lot um, yeah uh, I, I gave this one to Eubank but I, I was umming and ahhing which way did, did, did you give round seven I struggled a bit with it I was leaning yeah. towards Eubank but yeah. I also felt like I felt like Eubank had the more more shots um, and he was more controlled mm. but I also felt that uh, Nigel Ben shots were maybe doing a bit more damage. Um, yeah. Or yeah, land, but at I, least I, maybe not doing more damage, but landing uh, like kind of clean yeah, shots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. But the, because, you know, obviously. Uh, at, at, at that latter part, though, um, there was a you know, it could easily get overlooked. Uh, Eubanks throws a one-two, and. Um, and Nigel Ben did stagger back a little bit, and, and Eubanks won a, a little bit of a flurry there. But then you had this low blow instant that, that come on, and maybe that's a little telltale time that maybe Chris Eubanks was finding this pace that Nigel Ben was uh, putting on. Find a little, but, you know, these body shots he was throwing, um, I, I felt like they weren't scoring a lot of the time. They, now uh, Eubanks had already brought his elbows real, real in close. So as much as Nigel Ben was being really active. He was being really active against the, the blocks of Eubank. So, ah, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if those, that sort of shot scores, I could argue with myself to give Ben that round on, on activity. But if you're going to do it on crisp shots and you're landing and actually scoring, scoring, I, I feel like that was going uh, Eubank's way. Yeah, difficult. Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, round eight? Round eight, yeah. Uh, yeah, round eight. Let me just see what I've got down here for this. Um, yeah, but I got down here about um, Nigel Ben was getting a little bit more wild now. And I think this is due to that eye. I, I just think his vision was getting worse and worse because um, he was almost going back to the ropes, which told me he wasn't of clear vision to keep walking forward. It's almost like, well, OK, I've got to let Chris Eubanks come on to me to get my shots going. Um, he was throwing out jabs and weren't seeing the jabs coming back as well. I noticed that with Nigel Ben, he was throwing out really fast jabs, were yes. kind of missing, and then he was getting connected by Eubanks. And again, I think this was all down to his eye. Um, Nigel Ben did stop throwing some some hooks, some real meaning at hooks, but again, that distancing was just not there. Um, but because he was putting so much venom in those shots, he managed to score that knockdown. 
Um, you've got to score it as a knockdown. I think it, it just hit him and it, it made him miss foot a little bit. It went, but he wasn't rocked by any stretch. So, yeah, I think he was, it was right to be scored as a knockdown. But, um, but I don't think it was actually, I don't think it actually damaged uh, Eubanks in any way. No, but this was no. really what I think Nigel Ben was searching for. He was looking to try to really dig deep to create some. I think he was intending for that to happen in the previous round. But it happened in this round, nevertheless. But I just think he couldn't get the finish because his eye was just hampering him too much. He backpedaled again. He he didn't press onto Eubanks consistently, um, and that goes to, to to tell me there was something wrong. There was clearly no problem with his energy levels because he was throwing such fast hooks. But they were just main, nearly all out the range. Okay, he got the knockdown in that round, but he was throwing and missing an awful lot as well, and that's that's tiring. And Chris Eubanks is good at that. He's good at making boxers miss uh, and make them begin to tire. And then he gets, you know, gets that precision that maintains throughout the fight. And um, he starts stealing rounds off people. But that said, the knockdown has to be scored, and, and you have to really give it to to Nigel Ben in that round. But it was not a convincing round, but by any stretch, it, he he only won that round because of the knockdown. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Uh, it was. In a very, very interesting uh, round. I agree mm. you've got to score the knockdown. Um, yeah. Nigel Ben hit a couple of really nice shots. Um, mm. And I noticed that just, I think it was just after, it might have been just before the knockdown. But mm. when he, he hit Eubank with a really nice combination, and Eubank's hands were pretty much down by his waist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you could tell Nigel Ben uh, felt like he won this round because he mocks Eubank as they walk off because they go to go to the same corner. Yeah. Um, and he kind of mocks Eubank's strut. Um, yeah. So, you know, Nigel Ben, he, despite the damage to his face and eye, is feeling mm. pretty confident. Um, it's yeah. that right hook, isn't it? It catches him right behind the ear. That's uh, right. Um, and yeah. knocks him down. But, you know, yeah. Eubank's not, it doesn't seem affected by it in any way because he's straight back. Yeah. Um, I just think it was a strange place to get hit. It was, the, like you say, it was behind the ear. The ear. Clearly didn't see it coming, and it, it kind of pushed him diagonally forward. Um, you know, we we know that Nigel Ben's a, a pretty big banger, so yeah, it, it, it kind of it made him stumble with his his rear foot, his right foot, and that sort of sent him to the canvas. But you know, it was a punch that landed uh, that led him to being on the canvas, so it has to score. But I just don't think it it knocked him dizzy in any way. He, he, he wasn't ruffled by it. It just meant, unfortunately, for because Eubank, you know, he lost the round because of it. But I don't think he was perturbed by it by any stretch. I think Ben was trying to convince himself that that was something that was going to be a turnaround for the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next round, sorry, round eight, isn't it? Um, yeah. Oh, that, so, that, yeah. That was round, round eight, eight, wasn't it? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, that was round, round eight. Nine. We're in round nine, aren't yeah. we now? Straight away, uh, they clinch up. Uh, Nigel Ben hits a really nice right hook on as they break from from not quite a clinch, but they kind of mm. come together as if they're going to clinch, and then as they break mm. away from each other, uh, mm. Nigel Ben hits a lovely right hook. Um, Nigel Ben looks quite confident now, even though he's got the damage to his eye. Yeah, but Eubank I think looks focused. He looks yeah. like he is really just waiting for that, waiting to pick a shot. Um, yes, yeah. his, his head. Is very steady. His 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 feet are planted, which tells me that he's 
he's uh, he's waiting and lining up that kind of big combination. Mm. Whereas mm. when you know when he was circling early on and he and he's moving around the ring to avoid getting hit, that to me says that he's you know he's he's going to look to score points from counter punching. But mm-hmm. you know in terms of this round, I felt like yes, you know his footwork is still there, but yeah. whenever he's lining up any sort of punch. Uh, he's planted and putting a yeah. bit on, putting a bit on it, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. I do, I feel that Chris Eubanks' balance was just showing to be a little bit better. He he was getting that jab still going into uh, Ben's face. Um, I just think he wanted to aggravate that eye. It never really looked like Eubanks was ever trying to intend to not not bend down or not bend out. With the way he was throwing that jab, it, it looked like his conservative energy just wanted to try to keep out of harm's way. He'd been knocked down in that previous round, and I think he didn't want that to happen for another round. I think he just thought of trying to get ahead with that jab, stay ahead with that jab, and just to try to nullify the previous round to try to get another round in the bag for himself. But, you know, no, like no, I say, no. I don't think he was intending to. He started, he knocked him, he rocked him, and uh, he went on a flurry, he tasted blood. He, he knew Nigel Ben was hurt, and um, yeah, he kind of stayed on him really. And and then we see the referee take a close look when he parted Ben and Eubanks. He took a good look at Nigel From the Ben. Corner. Yeah. yeah, he did. He really Nigel looked ben into his was, eyes. Um, and just in the corner when uh, before he parted them, um, his head was rocking back with every every punch. And, yeah, um, yeah. If you just if you, if you go back like you just said, and you watch the referee from the moment Eubank takes him into the corner and his head's snapping back, yeah, um, and Nigel Ben's head snapping back with those big shots and the big combination, yeah. the referee's eyes are focused solely on Nigel Ben. They are looking yeah, at him it was. to see if he's defending yeah. himself, see how he's how he's reacting, are his reactions slow? Is he you know sure. is he, his eyes drooping? Um, and I thought that was. Real good referee, and considering this was 1990, sure. so you're talking 30 years ago, may I add? Mm. Jesus, sure, um, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, that camera angle wasn't great for us to see. We did get to see what the ref was seeing. He parted him, he stared straight in the face of Nigel Ben. You're absolutely right, his head was wobbling. Um, he took a real close look, looked into his eyes, and um, and when Eubanks went straight in on him, took a couple of more hits. Clearly, the ref saw that something wasn't right. And um, and yeah, great stoppage. Yeah. It's always good to see the, uh, a fight stopped when it should. Um, I think that that eye overall. I wonder whether he's going to get through to twelve rounds anyway with that eye. Um, it was only ever going to start closing up more and more and more. Um, yeah, good 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 fight overall. Very very close. Um, I just feel like if it was going to reach the twelve rounds and we take that knock knockout out the equation or take the the referee stoppage out the equation, I think this was going to steer towards um, Eubanks' favour. Indeed, yeah, it was a great um, great performance. It was a great fight all round. Yeah, um, I can't believe how quick the ring filled up after the, after the bout. It was unbelievable. There was hundreds of people in there. Um, yeah, yeah. And in many ways, this was Chris Eubanks' uh, kind of defining victory as a, um, you know, as a boxer, as a superstar. Because I feel like up until this point, people didn't always give him the credit that he he deserved. Um, Mm. And I think Nigel Benn was kind of like the big challenge for him. Yeah. He put on a very strong performance. He got knocked down, but he also 
never really looked in danger of losing mm. via stoppage. Um, yeah. I'm very much looking forward to number two next week, I believe, off the top yeah. of my head. Number two goes the full 12 rounds as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's going to be good. So, indeed. Uh, so, we'll move on to UFC number five. The Revenge. Yeah. No, The Return of the Beast or The Revenge? Yes. Which one is it? Uh, the, the return, return of the beast. Of the beast. Yeah. Return of the beast. Because of course, not only is Dan Severin coming back after losing in the final, but we also have a uh, Mr. Ken Shamrock. Yes. Coming yes. Back to face Chris Gracie in the UFC's first ever super fight, which mm. again, very interesting little tidbit. And uh, okay. What did you uh, what did you make overall of the of the UFC number five tournament? Of course, we were introduced to some some very familiar names uh, in obviously Ken Shamrock's back, Dan Severn's yep. back, but we also got to have a little look at um, uh, Oleg Taktorov. Takt yeah, yeah, we 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 see some new names coming in um, that you know we know become you know famous over the course of time. So it's just nice seeing some new new input of new names. Um, yeah, overall the show show was good. The super fight was a bit lackluster. Yeah, a bit bit boring. Um, we spoke off air before before that as a little disappointing. There's not really a lot to report on that fight when you know when we, when we get to it. It's the longest uh, of all the bouts, but the one that you can you know uh, talk <laughs> talk the least about as much as it was the longest. There wasn't a lot that happened in it. Um, but yeah, I. I the, the frustrating thing about maybe the early UFCs is the fact that so many fighters couldn't go through to the next round through injuries and, and different yeah, issues. That's, that's what thing, made it, it frustrating. And that's always going to be the case, I think, with these knockout-type rounds uh, where there's such limited rules like there is. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Because I, there's a couple of guys who had to pull up in these last couple couple of bouts who yeah. I actually think could have really gone, and I would have liked to have seen him go up against a, you know, your Hoist Gracie's and mm. and this sort of thing. And yeah, yeah. So it's it's unfortunate, isn't it, that they never, you know, they never got the opportunity to, to yeah. test themselves at that level sure. because, you know, they had done so well, um, and mm -hmm. then they'd obviously there was one I think it was this one where he had a bruised hand from punching the guy in the skull. Mm. Um, and you know that's so unfortunate because he had been quite dominant in the in his fight mm. and deserved the opportunity to go and you know have a go and see if he could push on and yeah yeah it didn't but yeah because uh, th th this was the way. The, that first fight there was a massive height difference wasn't it so there was a guy five foot nine um, and and, a, and against another guy who was at six foot seven you know, this is when you. <laughs> You know, they always like to throw in sort of a giant of a man, don't they, in the early UFCs? Um, and um, it was actually one of the, the, the better fights, I think, um, this first fight, that, um, that Andrew John Ness, I think it was his name. Um, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this. It was quite a lot of action. Yes, indeed. Um, so there was a couple of alternate bouts which we don't see. Uh, which mm. I'll just kind of go through. So they changed the rules in the last couple where instead of just having substitutes who come in if needs be, they make the they have four alternates who have to mm. fight. 
uh, one for each side of the of the tournament. Um, sure. So that at least you know they've earned their way that mm. way. Uh, so you had David Bantanu defeated uh, Asbel Cancio via TKO after 21 seconds, and uh, Guy Mezger defeated John Dowdy via TKO after two minutes. So they are your two uh, alternates who will or won't come into the tournament at some point. Yeah. They do. <laughs> um, must have I made? I just got a bit distracted there. Okay. Um, so, the first round. Let's start at the top. We have John Hess, who obviously goes on to have a, a, a fairly fairly decent career in... Mm. Uh, you know, martial arts and, and armies and uh, armies, uh, films and uh, this this type of stuff, martial arts generally. Yeah. Uh, he had a very, uh, very impressive. He's a big old boy, isn't he? Yes, Is he yeah, big, big man. Huge. Like six foot seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. John Ness, yeah, big, big man. Um, he's got like a multi style, isn't he? He's got kind of got like a judoy, karate. You know, jujitsu. It, it was sort of like a traditional, complete martial art, if you can call such a thing. Um, you know, but you know, they they both come out absolutely gunning at it, uh, and the shorter guy Andy clearly wanted to get it to the ground. But I think the size of that John Ness, he, he found it hard to get him down, and John Ness was just throwing crazy elbows, crazy punches, nothing hugely technical about what he's doing. He's just a just a big, big man um, coming out with mean intentions. And obviously, doing the martial arts, he's, he's got some idea on, on what's going down. Um, so they do go to the ground briefly, but Big John Ness gets up um, and starts really putting it on Andy, and, and just really he just overwhelms him with his with his size and just pure pure aggression. Uh, nothing particularly tidy about anything that he did, um, but yeah, it, it was good. He punched him to the ground, got into his back, and um, yeah, it weren't really going to go on any further um, yeah, than that. Yeah. It was over pretty quick. John Hess uh, trained in Sanso, which I believe yeah. is like uh, his own Yeah, system, his own system. Which he created. He um, trained in like a multiple martial arts. And, yeah, he is, yeah. Uh, Kung Fu and this different types of stuff. Uh, unfortunately, he breaks his hand on Andy Anderson's skull uh, during the finishing sequence, uh, yeah. which will play into our, our next round. Uh, the next quarterfinal match was Todd Medina, who is a Jeet Kune Do, uh, versus Larry Curtin, who is a kickboxer. Uh, Jeet, Kune, Jeet Kune Do, for those who don't know, is the way of the intercepting fist. is a Cantonese abbreviation uh, martial arts, first influenced by the personal philosophy of none other than Bruce Lee. Uh, he yeah, founded yeah. the system on the 9th of July. 1967 yeah which uh, you know that's kind of cool i think that uh, todd M medina is the first of uh, kind of to use the bruce lee system in a sure in a such a big tournament like this yeah yeah Just, you know, talk us through this one my friend yeah yeah both 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 big big men as well well one not so in terms of <laughs> of his height but yeah th th this fight actually I think this is the one that went on for a little while. Let me just I've got to go back to my notes, even though I've got it here in front of me. Um, yeah. yeah, this this fight actually uh, went on a little bit. Um, I think you know this is like you know, 
two two guys who are clearly trying to 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 be well rounded and, and and showed a little know how um, in, in what they were doing. Um, I don't, I'm, you know what? I'm just getting modelled up on which fighters which it on here. I did this when I was watching it. I was writing notes, and then I found I was writing notes on the other person's name because I got modelled mm-hmm. up who's who um, with this. But yeah, I I mean the the issue I, I had of this as a spectator watching it was uh, you see them going for the guillotines with really not knowing they were just sort of holding on to the head and and squeezing. And, and but the problem with the guillotine as they were doing them back then was always putting uh, one of the guys on their back, um, and I think it was the, it was Todd, wasn't it? That was on his back. Uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, because it's yeah, one in the blue. So, yeah. yeah, it was Todd yeah. that uh, was getting himself on the back. Um, but you know, it, it it was a bit of a, a slot fest, really. Um, I wasn't seeing anything too technical going wrong, no. uh, going along. He couldn't pass the guard. Um, the other guy had, had no real know-how how to get up um, and that, that was the only real issue I had of this really that they both didn't have the know-how how to finish I think that's why this bout went on as long as it did um, it, it was guys with some kind of know-how in each position they knew what a closed guard was they obviously had some know-how on what a guillotine was but just no, had no finishing capabilities both with the ground a pound um, with the guy being on top and, and, and Todd not know, having any true finishing ability being underneath. Um, so you're, and I think this is due to the fact that they were big men with some know-how, but with not the polishing finishes. Uh, and, and this is what happened with big guys. They'd get transfixed into a position and you would get a lot of time in a position with not a lot happening because uh, no one seemed to have much understanding of getting posture. And I think when I was watching this bout, what come to my mind was because of the ability to headbutt, it would make the guy on top keep their posture down. And I think this kind of crowded their work for ground and pound. And as we've got to know, that when you're in a closed guard and you want to be successful with your ground and pound, you want to have a high posture, or even better, get a high posture and stand up in that closed guard. Um, we wasn't seeing that. We were seeing the guy stay really down low looking for headbutts that he didn't even know how to utilise properly, um, which was keeping his posture down so he had no real true ground and pound effort and he sort of just slumped past his guard um we see some grind sh- groin shots do you remember seeing the groin shots on this one yeah they were and trying to do nasty. similar to keith Hackney and joe sun um, i don't think that joe no it wasn't as bad i don't think he was hitting him on the button but he did get past the guard he did get a little success um you know uh with with, with his top position there um i'm just trying to remember how this one ended bear with me do you remember how this one ended? Uh, this one was TKO via... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, um, you know, nothing too really exciting. Um, it was one forearm choke. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it wasn't wasn't a great one. It wasn't utilised properly by any stretch. I actually don't think he tapped because it was a submission. I just think he was tired and couldn't find a way to get yeah, back on his feet. I thought that too. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... Like you say, it wasn't a, a technical master class by any means. It was just a bit of a... a yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's the issue with just the big guys of that era, really. Um, yeah, there, there, there was no finesse movements. Um, you do see you know, someone who's, who's perhaps more skillful in, in the next bout. Uh, you know, he's a bigger guy, but knew how to move in that Oleg Taktorov. I think things were... Different with those type fighters. Obviously, he went on to have quite a uh, quite a big career. 
uh, or a successful career, become a yeah. well-known fighter than the other two that we'd seen. They sort of like had their fights and then come off the radar somewhat on the MMA scene. Um, yeah. But yeah, that just that was a frustration for me back then with the big guys was the inactivity. Yeah, they didn't they didn't quite know how to keep it going. Um, mm. Even when they were like transitioning. Uh, you know, from from guard to to side mm. control or whatever, they would they wouldn't be a, a great deal of strikes, yeah, um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, the, you could see it is getting you know from UFC one, mind this is like another level altogether. Well, um, yeah, this, tour, yeah. this tournament, but you know, it's still nowhere near the current uh, the current day. Mm. Um. Okay, so the next bout was. Uh, Oleg Taktorov, who's mm. a Samba fighter, world Sam, world champion of Samba at the time, and I think he was yeah. champion at various things. Uh, obviously, sure. he went on to be a, a pretty successful uh, actor, uh, mixed martial artist. Uh, yeah. He fought in UFC and Pride and did very well for himself. Uh, he yeah. faced Ernie Vadicia, who was an American Kenpo. American Kenpo is also karate basically uh, yeah it, that, that kind of surprised me because he fought like a wrestler so I imagine there was he a did, bit of a rest, it, I think there was a wrestling background in there that obviously he, he fought rather favoured because um, you know he's he looks like a pretty strong man he's pretty intense as well I mean he used open hand strikes as well I don't know if you observed that very very similar to Keith Hackney um, and I think this was a little evolution of thinking about the rounds ahead. I think he was perhaps saving his fists for the uh, late about. So obviously, you know, had plans of going on. He weren't, he weren't doing it in there for a fad. He was in there for the real deal, real deal. And it absolutely looked like it. He really put uh, Oleg Taktorov under pressure um, just with his size. Really wide base. Definitely think there's wrestling because he had good sense of base. He had that really wide stance. He was in the one hooks guard of Oleg Taktorov. But look how cool, cool uh, Oleg was. It, obviously, you know, he's been in numerous difficult situations in training. This was not an issue for him. Dead relaxed. He was waiting. He was patient. Um, and that's what really impressed me. Um, and it was unusual as well to see someone choose to be in their gi and stay in their gi. You know, this is, you know, normally we see just BJJ guys in hoist um, and some of the judo practitioners that would keep their gi on. And in the very, very, even earlier, you'll see, you, you'd get your karate guy um, staying in their suit. But so it's quite unusual to see him in his suit. But he stayed really, really cool. And I think that's what ended up getting him a success. Um, it did punt for the leg to try to look for an armbar. But I think Ernest was just too big, um, too heavy. And it, it made his hips switch a little bit too slow. Uh, Ernest was keeping high posture. He was obviously aware of the submission. Don't think he was a submission artist himself by any stretch, but was obviously aware of uh, potential dangers. Um, he pushed through a nasty ebb, but um, do you remember seeing that? He sort of like jumped with both nasty, feet. But was, yeah, it could have been so much worse. Um, and again, just the calmness and the awareness of Oleg. He had a two hooks guard at the time, which kept Ernest really quite far back that stopped him being able to penetrate that headbutt to be um, hugely consequential. Um, Oleg started to look to sit up to activate those hooks. So anyone who knows jiu-jitsu, which is a lot of people who would be listening, knows that when you've got hooks, ideally you want to be set up. And you could tell he was looking to be active with those hooks because he tried to sit up with them. But he was able to sweep him by not even being set up in the end. Quite, you know, really because Ernest was 
stacking forward so, so much, he kind of ended up overshooting his base. He got single hook swept straight into a scarf hole, which is something you don't see very often um, in the modern day of MMA. Um, and kind of pulled up with uh, pulled up on the neck, which I can't remember the actual name of it, what, what they do now. But basically, it's a bit of a catch wrestling move more than anything else. But I think they do have that in Sumbo, obviously, because he, he performed it. But you get that scarf hold and you put pressure on the, the chest and pull up on the neck. Now, because you put it up on the neck, you might think that it's a choke, but it, it, actually, it compresses the, the lungs and um, as well as restrict the, the, the blood flow and airflow to the neck. But it really suffocates your 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 lungs when someone pulls up and knows how to do it properly. Some jujukas are, jujukas are very, very good at it. Um, and it was a real nice finish. If you think about that bout, Ernest spent all his time on top of Oleg. As soon as Oleg got on top, the bout was pretty much over within within five or six seconds, um, which goes to show sense. that Sambo with that submission skill and ability, rather than that fight with that Todd. You know, there, there was two guys that never really knew what they was uh, doing in a big way. They was just a little bit aware. And to me, that that fight finished with this forearm press that wasn't even utilised or done properly. Um, but so I think you know that was a first sign of um, someone else in the mix of USC that was actually a skilled fighter. Um, I was quite impressed with yeah. Oleg back then when I saw this fight. Yeah, Oleg, um, you, you alluded to it a bit there, it, the, how cool he was. And uh, mm. um, the pr real pressure, by the way, um, you know, yeah. he, was, uh, he was mounted. And there was periods where you thought, oh, is he going to... Because I didn't know the result of this before. And I right. was looking at it and I was thinking, oh, you know, is he only gonna is he gonna pull this off for a bit of a shock? Because he yeah. had a bit of pressure, he hit him with a big headbutt, he was there. And it yeah. was you know, there was times where I did wonder, but mm. Oleg never wondered. He mm. knew he was completely in control. Yeah. Um, maybe not of the fight, but mentally, uh, not once did he at any point feel like he mm. was in trouble. You could just see yeah. by his his whole demeanour. He was just waiting for that when, as soon as Ernie tired, I think, um, mm. and then he made that little error, and it was game yeah. set and match after that, wasn't it? It was all over. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, like the choke didn't look like that. Um, like it didn't look that. Um, was it a choke? This one. It's like a, a the, the what yeah, the one that we just see with Oleg. Yeah. Yeah, yeah in that triangle. It was like, it didn't seem as if it was like, you know, like, mm. um, it didn't seem like really like locked in as if like, oh my God, he's gasping for air. Um, yeah. So I do wonder whether there was a bit of, you know, a bit of tiredness there as well. I yeah. Think you said that as well, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, next up was Dan Severin, last year's uh, losing finalist. Versus John Charles, Dan Severin, uh, a wrestler. Joe Charles, wasn't it? Joe, uh, Joe Charles, Charles. Sorry, yeah. Uh, Judoko. Yeah. Judoko. Yeah, and, Joe uh, Charles. I think, I think, if I remember that name, he, he had fought in other no holds barred matches. Um, Joe Charles. But you know, didn't linger around on the scene too too long. But I think he had had experience he, um, before this bout. He fought in the um, UFC. Sorry, uh, UFC yeah. from nineteen ninety four, so the year before this. Till yeah. 2000. So he did right. a good yeah. six year stint in the UFC. But yeah. You know, it's, it's no mean feat. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, this one. Just, was, sorry, uh, mate, to interrupt you. Yeah, there, mate. I just wanted to say uh, John Hess 
was fined $2,000 for fouls committed in his fight with oh, uh, really? Andy Anderson. It doesn't say what the fouls were. I will try and find mm, that out. In it the may well have been meeting. the elbows on the spine because they, they might have had that as illegal at that point. Okay. I shall look into that now just as we're... Yeah, that's kind of, kind of curious. Because they weren't too up on the old rules, really, at this point, were they? Uh, yeah, they I think they was beginning to, they were starting to introduce time limits, and um, you know they, they start beginning to make it more of a sporting event rather than a pure no holds barred. Um, so I think for, some rules were getting put in place now, wasn't they? And yeah, uh, I do wonder whether it was the elbow to the spine. Yeah, I'll see if I can find that out now, just while we're talking. Um, so yeah. we take it away. Uh, where were we? Dan Severin uh, versus Joe. Yeah, Joe Charles. Yeah, um, Joe I thought Charles. this was going to be uh, more interesting on the feet than it was um, because you had a wrestler versus a, a judoka and both both big men. I mean, Dan Severin, we know steamrolls many of his opponents. is a big, big man who, who could wrestle really well um, and he would smother and just overwhelm his opponents. But, you know, Joe Charles is a big man himself. And your Joker, I, I thought his sense of balance would maybe keep him on his feet uh, a little longer, but it didn't really. Um, you, know, you could tell he had a little little fight there, but it weren't long before it was put to the floor. Had some ability to try to potentially get up, but uh, Dan Seven used classic uh, wrestling ground control, bracing that head and neck, kept him down. Uh, Joe Charles tried for, for an armbar, um, but there was no BJJ practitioners as such. Uh, other than the hoist back then. Um, so it was very, very much big man judo style armbar that was uh, so obvious that even Dan Seven saw it coming, um, pulled up out of it, spanned to the back of Joe Charles um, and choked him out in quick succession. And uh, Dan was, um, you know, beginning to look like a real dominant force, you know, being that he was quite successful in the previous UFC. Um, yeah, it, it, you're beginning to wonder whether anyone could potentially stop him anymore. Yeah, he's starting to look like a real machine, wasn't he? Um, yeah. It's very, very, uh, it's very interesting to watch his, all, in fact, all of them, they're just watching their, their evolution uh, mm. as a sport and, and, and just, you know, just watching it each year progress, the new rules, the, mm. the, the improvement in the fighters, the shape of the fighters, yeah. the, the styles that, which are successful, you know, early on, no one could grapple. So yeah. if you you had any sort of grappling skills, particularly if you mm. were as as skilled as someone like Royce Gracie, that was it. Yeah. You know, you you, yeah. you were unstoppable. Um whereas now obviously as time's going on, you're mm. seeing more uh, you know, other different uh, styles of yeah kind of uh, I, I think really from the previous UFC and this one with Dan coming on the scene, this was the, the era where wrestlers started to to really come on the scene and, and be seen as that dominant force. Yeah. All wrestlers had to do was become submission aware. And, um, and that was going to put any striker on their back. They just didn't always have the finishing capabilities, but they started to learn to do the ground and pound. Um, I don't think Dan Severn was ever the great ground, greatest ground and pounder, but you started to get other wrestlers that were. Um, so I think this was the real dawn, early stages of how effective wrestling um, was going to be in MMA. I don't think it was ever seen as a self-defense or an effective fighting system. But as time 
would tell before you know in UFC four, five, and and onwards, wrestlers would would have quite a big impact on the style of MMA. Yeah, did you feel that? Um, obviously, we were quite critical. The war, the not quite critical, but the the one thing we were critical of uh, mm. in terms of Dan Severn in his last appearance, which was obviously last week for us, was yeah. his striking. Uh, he had the opportunity to ground and pound versus hoist a lot during sure, the yeah. final, and he didn't take advantage of it, and he ultimately no. You know, paid the yeah. price. Um, did you feel like his striking had improved this time around? Yeah, aware, and he, he obviously started to do something. Um, he didn't have to rely on it. I think his game plan was always going to be the same. He's a big man, could wrestle really well. He was going to put people on their back and overwhelm them as early as possible. Um, and and in this UFC, he, he was just really running through people. Um, I just felt like you're right. You know. I'd already said it in the previous one. He just fought a really bad strategy. But, you know, um, adapting strategies and things like that wasn't in great evolution back then. He had got where he wanted to get hoist back in that previous, you know, UFC. And and, um, and was, oh, I've got him where I want him to be and I've got to try and find my win from there. I just think he should have to kept standing back up, reshooting in until he took hoist down where he had a more advantageous position, such as taking him down into a side control position. Because um, although hoist is a much more proficient grappler than Dan, I think strategically Dan would have got some more, um, perhaps more effective headbutts, more effective ground and pound from a side control perspective. Um, if he was going to be settling inside that closed guard, certainly if I was in the corner, um, I, I would have been getting him to, to stack up, stand up, get that head height and rain down some punches and elbows and really pressurise the guard of of hoist, but uh, that didn't happen. But it did seem that Dan uh, had evolved his ground game um, more. You know, he was getting around. He, he showed that choking capability in that previous bout. So I do think he was evolving and improving at this point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so the first semi-final was supposed to be John Hess versus Todd Medina, uh, mm. but John Hess had pulled out because he broke his hand on the yeah. skull. Of yeah. Andy Anderson. So David Bentua took over and yeah. um, faced yeah. Todd Medina. Yeah, Dave was uh, not, not waiting around. He got him down very, very early. Um, got into side control. Uh, Todd Medina, again, you know, we've already seen in the previous bout, really. He's not, not got a great ground. He's aware of things, uh, but that's about as much as it, as it went to. He was just holding on to the arms in side control. You know, he's being side controlled and probably he was just holding on to the arms to try to limit any potential damage that might come from from, from Dave. Um, but, you know, it wasn't long before the position just got even worse where it's, it becomes even harder to defend against potential strikes. He gets mounted. Um, and you can tell he just, just doesn't have know-how enough. Okay, he's bumping the hips, but he didn't know how to turn the hips to the side and, and bring his arms into play. Dave rises up gets ground a pan he wanted none of it he just didn't have the capabilities to get back off the ground um and dave was looking pretty strong here you know i this was making for an interesting interesting bout with dan because uh a big strong guy aggressive clearly got some wrestling capabilities um yeah a well-deserved win made short work yeah of Todd. i thought so i um, i was intrigued because i think the alternatives aren't always the greatest and also mm. um 
the thing which struck me about it is obviously the, I think it was the last was it the last one or it was I might have been UFC three where yeah. an alternative ended up winning the final, coming in just in the final and winning the whole yeah. tournament. And it kind yeah. of took the edge off it a little bit because mm. you like to see someone go through the tournament, win their matches and, and you know, sure. go that way to do it. So yeah. that was a bit dis but I felt like Dave uh, Bentois or Bentonu uh, was was pretty good and uh, I thought he was quite impressive in this. You know, Todd sure. Medina had uh, been I think he'd been in at least one previous UFC um, right. So he had a bit of experience. Um, yeah. He was no. Slouch. I think back at, back at that time, because because there was no BJJ around in any meaningful way in America at the time. I think there was, you know, a lot of people going into gyms, you know, kind of just trying to figure it out themselves at this point, in a, especially in the states. Um, so you could see that they it was giving it thought. They, they were trying to prep themselves up. But as we know, without like really extensive work in any specific area you, you're not going to bring you know much success to the ring or cage um you have to really get your pressure performance up so if you are going to work your ground game and improve it you kind of like have to do that extensively in training and do some tournaments you know you know i get my guys to do uh, bjj tournaments i don't just want them to learn the ground in the club and learn on the job in mma if they want to be mma fighters i say look you've got to sharpen your tools let's get you some amateur kickboxing fights so you can't take it to the ground let, let's do it so that your mindset is forced into the striking realm um, and get your pressure performance up there you know that's that's um that's not just uh you know learn your mma to avoid the ground that let's get you in BJ tournament so the ground is not alien to you, so you are confident there, so you are aggressive there. So I'll get them to do the jiu-jitsu tournaments as well. Um, but yeah, I think these you can see that you know some of their training was probably being done. I remember seeing interviews way back when I can't remember the name of the fights, but in the early UFCs, and they would talk about going around to each other's uh, garages that kitted out, and that they were trying to suss out things um, in the garage amongst amongst themselves. Um, I wish I could remember. I think I can't remember the name of the guy off the top of my head, but I know he's getting interviewed. It was an interesting interview back then as it was when I was listening to it. But yeah, he was basically saying that they would go to each other's training garage. Um, they were figuring it out and they were doing all their training with no no, no uh, gloves on. Um, and their missuses and wives were complaining that I was going by, going back home with all these cuts and bruises on them. But um, yeah, it was still it, it, it still primitive in the big scheme. To, to how we know to train today, but they had to, they had to just figure it out as they went, didn't they? Uh, uh, much of it. Yeah, yeah, and it, but it was clear, even you know, it was clear to the fighters, wasn't it? As clear as it is to us that you yeah. that you needed to have, uh, you know, you needed to have like that grappling defense at the very least. So these yeah, guys yeah. were trying to do their best to get access to it. You know, like now it's a lot easier to get access to. Mm. BJJ training or you know, yeah. grappling and and wrestling, whereas yeah, you know, perhaps back then it was a bit more tricky. Um, okay, so the next, uh, the other semi-final was uh, that what the the fight I was looking forward to the most actually, which yeah. was uh, Oleg Tektorov versus Dan Severin. Yeah, uh, yeah, this one was twenty-one. Yeah, this was absolutely much more exciting uh, for me, uh, and the actual fight. W w was quite good and interesting as well. So it wasn't just the, the pre-fight excitement of what might happen. The, the actual events that did happen were quite exciting. We know that Oleg Tekrov's got some striking ability. We know he has some kind of 
knowledge with the takedowns um, and he's got knowledge clearly of the submissions from his previous fight. And we know he was a cool cat. So, you know, his pressure performance is going to be up there. Dan Seven did what we know Dan Seven would do. He was the bigger man, the better superior wrestler. He took Oleg down. Oleg was completely calm. But look at the difference in awareness. So you can, like I say, you were seeing an evolving Dan Seven, not so much for his striking, but for his grappling. He was getting it down using his wrestling skills. And Oleg was firing up his hips, searching for arm bars and, and other things. And for the first time, we see uh, Dan Seven using a posture inside a close and open guard to try to get effective ground and pound. Now, he's, still his ground and pound was not that good. You kind of got to draw your elbow back further back than your shoulder to be able to piston pump down those arms. He would kind of like rabbit punching a little bit as much as he was getting some posture. But he was creating a really open guard of Oleg, which was giving him some guard pass opportunities. Um, and, and that was really exciting to see. So we was actually seeing, instead of a boring staying closed guard wrestling match that we've seen so many times before we've actually seen that wrestler rise up allowing okay for the guy to be underneath with a good guard game to be playing an open and a, a counter attacking guard but it was allowing the wrestler to also get his successes to pass the guard to get some ground a pound oh, at one point i thought this was going to be over uh, because oleg starts to nail in an armbar but this is where i think the first time you see the fact that a fence can actually go against you. The fence went against him. I think if this was out in the middle of the uh, the cage, you might have seen Oleg be able to open up his hips and nail this armbar. But he was crumpled against the fence. You started seeing horrible knees. And, um, you know, again, this was the evolution of the, the thought process of Dan Seven. He knew how to be aggressive with his wrestling capabilities. And he dropped those knees in and opened up a nasty cut on Oleg Taktor's face. Um was keeping heavy on Oleg's hips so he couldn't express his hips to get that armbar going um, and just continued to ground and pound on him. It, it, it started looking really horrible and started doing head butts as well. So you know, this was quite surprising because Dan Seven always seemed a bit of a gentleman with the way he fought, but he was now dropping knees down on people. He, he was head button. Um, he was really making it look ugly. Um, and eventually uh, you get uh, Big John McCarthy split up and stop the fight. He'd see enough of what he was seeing. I think he knew Oleg Taktorov was not going to be able to get himself out of that situation. I think he saved Oleg from, from an even worse beatdown. Because we know what Oleg's like. You, you're going to have to submit him and put him asleep. You're going to have to yeah. knock him out unconscious to stop him. He would have kept carrying on no matter how cut up he got. And a good call to stop the bout by John McCarthy. Yeah, and I think the other thing as well, this is where you're seeing the UFC evolving with rules and the referees yeah. being allowed to step yeah. in when they feel that the fighters are taking punishment, which they're not going to get out of. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because you're right. I think if Taktorov hadn't been by the fence, he'd have been able to lock that armbar in and you might have had him winning. But yeah. He didn't. And no. Dan Severin, because he was up against the fence, was able to really nail those uh, knees in and get the headbutt and open him up. And uh, yeah. there we go. So um, yeah. the final uh, of the tournament, but not the final uh, fight of the UFC 5, was uh, Dan Severin versus the alternate uh, David Bentonil, which uh, Dan Severin won via submission, key lock uh, yeah. submission, after three minutes and a second. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I did enjoy it about yeah Dan Seven dominant, you know, in the big scheme. Yeah, I think Dan big uh, Dan Seven's potential final really would have been with Oleg. I think if anyone was going to beat Dan Seven, it was going to be Oleg with a submission. You see him teasingly get close, but that didn't happen. And yeah, Dave never really. Dave was a big, strong guy, aggressive, had the potential to make an exciting fight, but Dan Dan did what Dan was doing back then, and he put the beast on him. And, and made short work of him overall for a final. Yes, yes, he did. Um, and then the final fight on this card was UFC's first ever super fight. Uh, yes. Which was Ken Shamrock, the world's most dangerous man. As it, uh, as yeah, he didn't, he didn't look at those, did he? Gracie. <laughs> yeah. He did not look at um, this fight. This fight yeah. went 36 minutes and 6 seconds to a draw. Yeah, it was yeah, it was pretty boring. Um, I I think this was all for Ken to win, and um, he kind of fought Hoist how Dan Seven did. He 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 took him down, got in a closed guard, and, and stayed there. Clearly, Ken was the the potential better striker, and he was the better wrestler. He should have been finding an opportunity to get some ground a pound off, and when the guard would get open, stand back to his feet, draw Hoist up so that he could get a takedown in a way where he'd have a better advantageous position, such as a side control or potential mount, maybe. Um, or to, to strike on the feet with Hoist. Um, but he was happy to stay, or not happy because he looked nervous to be there, but he just stayed in the closed guard um, getting his kidneys heel kicked. Um, and all he was doing was being so tight in the closed guard, he was stopping Hoist really having any attempt at any decent submissions. Hoist just did what he could do. Um, Hoist couldn't really steer the fight any other way. He kind of like was never going to take Ken down and put him on his back. He was only ever going to potentially maybe be able to sweep Ken, but I think his base was too good. Um, he was never going to outstrike Ken either. So Hoist just had to play with what he's got, um, which was the close and open guard. And I think, you know, to give it to him, he was really trying to put this match away. He, he, he probably landed more strikes against Ken and Ken was landing against him, um, especially with those heel kicks taken into account. And he was trying to do that sleeve choke. And I think a couple of times he kind of made it uncomfortable for Ken, but Ken was just being so cagey. Um, it became really hard to watch. Um, it was so tempting to keep dabbing my finger on the screen and, and fast forward in 10 seconds, but I did enjoy the whole lot. Um, and, um, and, you know, I could have got away with doing it and I wouldn't have missed anything that new. Um, yeah, just, it, it was a ball fest. They get to the end of their 30 minutes and then they do a five-minute extra, doesn't, didn't they? They did like an extra time yeah. thing on there. But again, the same situation ensued very, very quickly. Um, there was a strike that landed and a headbutt that Ken managed to get, which caused damage to uh, Hoyce's eye. But it goes the distance and um, and gets a draw. Uh, I think... Uh, Am I right that we heard boos with this one? I think we heard boos from the crowd. I think they were now becoming more educated. Um, I don't think the boos were for Hoist in particular, but I think maybe steered towards Ken, um, but quite possibly uh, steered towards just the, the, the way the bout went because it had the potential to be so much more um, exciting than it was. Yeah, and it's, not, it's just not the Ken Shamrock that you go on, you know, and we see for for many years after this. Uh, yeah, he become striker, and then yeah, he become a lot better people. than this. Yeah, um, yeah, he was, he, he was fighting nervously to lose again. 
Yeah, yeah. Fighting, I think he saw it as success to to go the distance and get a draw. I think he knew that people were thinking that Hoist was almost unbeatable at this point, and to get a draw against him to 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 him was going to benefit him more than it did Hoist. But um, yeah, it it was a shame. I think it had the potential to be so much better than it was. And um, as much as I liked Ken as a fighter back in the day, um, I was left disappointed with this with this performance, both yeah. back then and, yeah, yeah, and now was, watching it back. Yeah, it was uh, it was not good. Uh -huh. um, and unfortunately, we're going to finish on two fights which weren't great. Um, which yeah. is a shame because the Chris Eubank Nigel Brown fight was fantastic. Um, and some of the, the fights within the tournament were pretty good. Yeah. Um, John Hess. Okay, let's tell you about this fine. Oh, you uh, found out. So John Hess, mixed martial arts career, came in the UFC, blah, 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 tournament five. Uh, he beat uh, Andy Anderson by TKO at one minute and 20 seconds. Uh, the fight is regarded as one of the dirtiest in UFC history, and Hess was ultimately fined $2,000 for right. two violations against the rules, uh, both for eye gouging. Um, oh, right. Hess has defended his actions, stated that, citing that the UFC built itself as no rules, uh, and therefore there were no rules to break. However, despite the marketing slogan, the UFC events did have a limited list of forbidden techniques, uh, right. and the infractions could only result in a fine. Uh, he withdrew with a broken hand from the tournament. Um, right. You know they mm. are very. They were very clear uh, that there was there was one or two things that you, you know, you weren't allowed to do. Sure. Um, and I yeah. was on that. Um, and obviously the other thing with the Ken Shamrock fight, just going back to that, uh, is there was no judges at this point. So if they, because this was a one-off super fight, they put a time mm. limit on it, but there was no judges yeah. to say, you know, sure, so and so won. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good job they did put a time limit on it because oh, that Jesus, could have gone on for hours, down. and and that would have killed the sport <laughs> there and then. Yeah, or it would have the that, that would have been a big rule changer if it if they hadn't brought it in, it would have been brought in thereafter. <laughs> Indeed, uh, and obviously this that was at the at the time that was one of the longest uh, longest mm. ever uh, UFC yeah. bouts. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, so we're going to finish off. We're going to finish off not just the show. But we're going to finish off the uh, Gracie family killer, or what was it the Gracie Hunter? Uh, yeah. Kazushi Sakaraba versus yeah. uh, Royce Gracie Two, which was held at Pride uh, Fighting Championships 2000. Um, I tell a lie uh, that when we're talking about the one from 2007, which was at K1 Dynamite in the USA. Mm. Um, yeah. Obviously, the first one we covered a couple of weeks ago as uh, Pride yeah. uh, 2000. Yes. Um, we've also covered Henzo Gracie versus Sakuraba and mm. Royler Gracie versus Sakuraba. Um, I felt like this 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 bout was the weakest of the of the four that we've covered from this feud. Um, yeah, I didn't, or certainly the least enjoyable from for me anyway. Um, yeah, uh, and also it it kind of took off. The shine off it that obviously Royce Gracie mm. got uh, tested positive for steroids after the bout as well. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, you correct would, me if I'm you, wrong, uh, mate. It's K1 that kickboxing. Uh, yeah, K1's basically kickboxing. Yeah, yeah. And, and out so of all the like formats, 
yeah, of all the formats of striking, that's the one I enjoy watching the most. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah we, this and, was like a, yeah, a one-off what we special say, event match. Yeah, our, our um, uh, JB Graham's our K1 and uh, Thai boxing coach. As, although he does teach the style of Thai boxing, um, mm-hmm. he'll be more, more well known for um, for his K1 style fighting. And he's the one that you know. I send all my guys for their hands to Lee Edwards. I send all my guys that once they've got their hands and their footwork and balance, I send them to this guy called J- uh, JB Graham. He's produced world champions. Um, uh, uh, Tim Thomas, he, he was uh, a world champion un, um, under his uh, coaching. He you know, really knows his stuff about striking. Um, a phenomenal addition to the BST Academy team. And um, I, and you could tell this, you know, JB Graham's an intelligent coach because, you know, he'll pick my brains about what MMA is all about and he'll adapt that K1, which only needs a little tweak uh, regards the awareness of takedowns and stuff. He's willing to put in those tweaks when he trains my guys, and uh, yeah, it works really, really well. K one's good style, good, good, you know, really realistic, effective style. Cool, cool. Yeah, quite the team, quite the team. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I want you to uh, talk me through this uh, utter okay. bore fest. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah, yeah. It had its moments where it was frustrating. It started off a little exciting. Um, you get Sakuraba land a, a, a quick leg kick and not uh, hoist off his feet with a right cross um, uh, and, and not, knocks him over, gets him on the ground. And it very quickly looked like it was going to go how the previous fight went with uh, Sakuraba standing up, kicking the, the guard. Yeah, um, yeah. We actually saw Hoist kicking um, uh, Sakuraba's legs a lot more. Um, ends up trying to scramble up, gets his back taken with like a, a, a two-on-one Kimura prep. Uh, they stand back to their feet. Hoist gets on the back. Now, for me, Sakuraba just didn't look quite the physical crispness that he's looked in previous no, he did not. Uh, years. I think he had accumulated another 20 or so bouts in between the last time that they fought seven years prior. I mean, that's a lot of fights. Um, and we know he'd fight anyone, any weight. Um, he, you know, he had real physical hard fights against uh, Vandalay Silva. Uh, got remember back out uh, at that time, Vandalay would have been juiced to the eyeballs, um, and what a scary prospect, you know, physically in his prime and and on gear, uh, a devastating striker. Um, so yeah, they would have accumulated a lot of damage on Sakuraba, and I feel like you you saw a Sakuraba that had already had some of the fight taken out of him, um, and but by the same token, I think maybe Hoist was he's possibly his physically best, whether you put that down to perhaps steroids that he's been accused of taking. Didn't look like it by his physique. He's got a gangly, you know, not particularly strong-looking man. He certainly didn't look heavily bulked like you would imagine someone who looked at steroids. So I'm not saying that he didn't take them. If he tested positive, if he tested mm-hmm. positive, he's, he's guilty in the eyes of the law as it was back then. Um, but uh, I, I just felt like you know, Sakuraba in this fight was slightly a lesser man, and maybe Hoist was a little bit more of a man and was meeting force on force a little bit more effectively. Um, against Sakuraba because um, he had moments where he was on Sakuraba's back standing up didn't make a loads of it but nevertheless it still scores um, I don't know how they were scoring the, 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 the bouts uh, in terms of their round breakdown um, in this event because it was could, a, a different event the Dynamite K1 event it was a different total event so how they were judging it who, who knows um, you would initially think with the knockdown it would have gone in favour of Sakuraba that round Um 
Second round, uh, yeah. I don't, what did you think of this, the, the first round? Is that pretty uh, much how you saw it? Yeah, I, so they scored, the judges scored it 30 27 uh, in the first round, 29 yeah. 28, and then 29 28 all to the right. Um, yeah, I thought Sakuraba probably took the first round just about. Yeah, I would say, I would say, but the second round was a, a bit different. Like I say, this is where you know, I started to suspect that Sakuraba wasn't his best, he looked a little bit yes. more tired, he, he looked like he struggled to get. Hoist down. Um, you did see him get Hoist in um, a tie clinch, but Hoist was showing, you know, tr true grit and determination. Was body shot in Sakuraba in return. Sakuraba tried to take Hoist down. He just didn't have it in him to get him down so easily. It took him numerous attempts at the hips to try and suck him in. Uh, momentarily threw him down um, to his right, but Hoist was straight back up. Uh, I think something was amiss here with, with Sakuraba. I think Sakuraba of hold would have um, ragged Hoist down a little bit more? Or are we perhaps uh, underestimating the improvements that Hoist had made? Because clearly he had made some. He had some kind of striking ability. Absolutely. Yeah, he had some kind of striking ability. And some know-how had to stay on his feet a little bit more. So, um, no gi. And, yeah, and done no gi, which I think helped him because I think it went against him against Sakuraba. But Sakuraba looked really tired going back after the second round. Um, and you could argue that Hoist won that round. Yeah, I think I had Hoist uh, winning the second round. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think Hoist had improved massively uh, from a yeah. striking perspective. Yeah. But I agree with you. I just felt like whether uh, Sakuraba was just a bit fatigued after so many bouts mm. in the yeah. past couple of years, um, and or maybe we were witnessing like the kind of the the start of the down sort of downhill yeah. in his in his peak yeah. in his performance. I think he's maybe. past his best. I, yeah, I don't I'm not hundred percent sure but um this bout it took a lot of criticism uh this bout. Um I think putting it on the K one card was probably a mistake. Um, yeah, I agree. Cause, like because like I said, I don't know how they were judging it. And they would have been expecting, you know, they've just witnessed a full card of explosive, uh, aggressive striking battles mm. and then you're gonna yeah some mixed martial arts bouts uh, yeah like what we just talked about with ken Chabon, sure. you know it's, it's it's never going to be greeted well mm. by the fans in attendance the, yeah 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 and also the reviewers and people at the time and also what yeah. didn't help it was there was no commentators uh so like you know you in the previous bouts you had um like uh baz Rutin was doing the, yeah. the commentating he was very good um, you had yeah, no commentators, like and then you just had this annoying bloke who was talking to the crowd almost and encouraging the fighters to fight, and and I that mm. really I didn't like that at all. Yeah, um, and I got to say, I yeah, I was uh, I'm not a fan. Um, go on, talk me through yeah. the third round. Yeah, so the third round, um, you, you do see Hoist get, or he doesn't think can put to the ground. Um, he shoots in, and one of the things you did notice with this, whether he always had this as a training plan, but he was shooting him for a double. So he, obviously trying to work his wrestling aspects for uh, defense because he was able to stop the takedowns numerous times that Sakuraba was trying to attempt to do. So clearly improved his defensive wrestling, but also was improving his wrestling uh, in, in, uh, for the takedown because he, he was shooting really low and deep like a proper double should be done. He just doesn't have great physicality. Um, you know, like we say, he's not the strongest guy. He's quite gangly. He's quite tall. Um, 
put that, that weight that they're fighting at. So he was shooting in. He had his arms gaping a little bit, and Sakuraba kept getting the double under pummels on him uh, mm. to, to sprawl that, that shoot attempt. So Hoist was then secondarily sitting back to guard. He ended up with a half guard, set up a Kimura hammerlock set up on Sakuraba. Um, couldn't really get success at getting it off, but it did help him get to the feet, and he ended up working around to Sakuraba's back. Um, and Sakuraba really allowed him to stay there way too long and and hoist ended up landing quite a few unanswered strikes from his back and this is where i think maybe the the, the round went against sakuraba because um, he was receiving you know consequential strikes time and time yes, again he yeah. was just eating them up and i think that's that was going down on whatever striking format or however scoring format that they had was going against him he was being scored upon and okay yes he ended up having a little success at the end of the round by landing in a Kimura attack himself on Hoist. Um, I don't think it would have got anywhere. I think Hoist is just too high level on the ground to have let Sakuraba um, get him in a submission, which was going to complete. Um, and, yeah, we got the end of the round. The, the decision comes out and went in favour of Hoist. Um, it could have gone either way um, initially, but this was not the best of Sakuraba. Um, and possibly some of the best that we've seen Hoist do. Uh, but overall, not a great bout to watch. It was not, um, not not overly exciting. I think the fact that it wasn't exciting was the fact that Sakuraba couldn't make it exciting because he didn't have the the old, old uh, the younger, youthful body that he once had. Um, yeah, so that's how I saw the bout. I'm, I'm not surprised it went in Hoist's favour because of that back-take situation uh, and those strikes. I think maybe he lost the round just because of that bit. That's my so, presumption that I can come, come to. With that third round, I feel like uh, I can see why they gave it to Hoist based, you know, on what you said about the when he took his back and he uh, doing the strikes. However, yeah. I feel like if it was being scored by uh, legitimate MMA judges like we get yeah. now, I feel yes. like they may have given it to Sakuraba because he, he did threaten with several submissions throughout the round yeah. and ended the round. Uh, threatening with a, sure. I think it was a, I forget what it was, but he's so got a two-on-one camera. Yeah. Um, so it's like he was attacking, but he was only attacking via submissions, and I feel yeah. like these judges didn't appreciate that in terms of the appreciate what that was and the, the yeah that it was a legitimate form of attack. I yeah. can see why they gave it to Gracie, but I could I wouldn't have been surprised if you had told me. That Sakuraba won the first and third round. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and the fact they scored uh, we, all three to Gracie. Yeah, and th this this was in America, right? I, I believe. Yeah. This, yeah, this, this show was held in America. Yeah. I think. You know, had this been in Japan, it would have gone in. <laughs> it would have gone the other way around. Um, oh yeah, God. Yeah. But uh, possibly one of the first times that Sakuraba fought outside his country. I think. Um, you know, that yeah, perhaps needs a little investigation to. Um, and yeah, it went against him possibly for that reason. But I just think there's a big question mark on how this was being judged because uh, you know who were the judges? Were they K1 judges? I don't know what type of judges were. Were they MMA judges brought in for this bout? I don't actually know. Um, but yeah, but there, there didn't seem no disappointment on either of them. Uh, they hugged at the end of it. They seemed to you know have their utmost respect for each other. Um, yeah, and it kind of com completed their little feud. Indeed, and we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna. That's gonna be the first of our. Uh, we're gonna do a video 
little 10 minute video on uh, YouTube on, on the feud between yeah. uh, Sakuraba and, and the Gracie yeah. family at some point. Um, we're just sure. trying to work out when and where, and then we're gonna we're gonna move on and do some other sure. little feuds. Yeah, you just you just things. let me know. Yeah, I can fit it in, just not on, on different days and that. People can yeah, we can yeah, work around it. Um, um, so yeah, obviously, Royce Gracie uh, was found or found to have tested positive for steroids afterwards. Um, I know there's he, his victory remained intact on his record because apparently it was a tainted supplement and. I think there's actually a bit of a scandal around it, and there's just judging by what yeah. I think now. But it's, it was never legally overturned. Or yeah, it's really... Not, uh, yeah, I mean, her, that, you know, that testing, I mean, yeah, he could have taken it. I don't know whether the Gracie family would ever no, put I their name so. at risk of taking it. And, you know, he doesn't look... He did look in good shape. Um, clearly, he knows he needs to be stronger, and it looked like... Yeah, it's so hard to really know, you know. But we really put the legacy of the whole family name to 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 risk. Just to be I really don't know. Yeah, yeah I don't know whether he would. So Kate yeah, Marshall. I mean, was someone tried to trying to sabotage their name? That's a possibility. Um, I just don't know. But initially, look, the the fight is what it was. It's in in the long distance past, and it was an interesting feud that they had and. You know, it all started with Takada, but we get to talk about this, um, you know, when we do our 10-minute review on, on, on the whole subject. Um, but, you know, it all initially started out with Hickson and, uh, and Takada, which was, um, you know, the same training camp from Sakuraba. That's where it all started. Um, and it was great. It, it, it was good. It's, um, it has its place in history. Indeed. Uh, so... Uh, I remembered, obviously, we've got to move on. We're going to do UFC 6 next week, Nigel Ben versus Eubank 2. And then yeah. we were asked by uh, someone on Twitter um, if they if we would cover Jack Shaw's, uh, you know, his career, uh, his rise through Cage Warriors and into right. into the UFC, fight by yeah, fight. But that's that's um, a good call. Which we will do mm. on one condition that we are able to get access to fights, whether it's on YouTube or Fight Pass or whatever. Um, oh, of course, so yeah. That's the, that's the plan. Um, I'm going to have a look, and obviously I'll contact Danny. If not, then we will pick, or we'll ask, I'll ask on social media for a different, uh, yeah. whether it's a, an MMA rivalry where we can do the fights, like a couple of fights over a couple of weeks, or whether okay. we just pick a... Yeah. A classic MMA bout for next week. Yeah, and we do another one the week sure. after, and and so yeah. so and so. Um, I know there's some of Jack Shaw's Cage Warriors fights on YouTube. So as long as right. we can get like maybe his debut in Cage Warriors and a couple of other fights, maybe a title yeah. fight, and then his debut yeah. in UFC. That's yeah, that's enough. But um, sure. I'd, if we're gonna do it, I'd like to get his debut and his. Cage Warriors title and his UFC debut, they'd be the three, right. and then anything after that is obviously a, a bonus. But um, sure. yeah, I'm happy to if you've got any recommendations, guys. Um, you know, just send them to myself and Danny, and we can we'll always have a look. We're looking for boxing and MMA, uh, classic individual bouts or kind of like rivalries over a couple of fights or a few fights, which we'll kind of do like we've been doing, split them up over over the, the weeks, and we'll keep going through the UFC shows week by week. Uh, mm -hmm. 
check out BST Academy on uh, bstacademy.co.uk. Obviously closed at the moment, so there's not uh, not much going on. But uh, hopefully the lockdown will be lifted soon, and uh, we can all get back to some sort of normality. Mm -hmm. uh, in the meantime, check out all our shows on the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. That is the best way to support the channel. Subscribe at youtube.com slash acepodcastnation and uh, you know, check us out on all the social media shows and stuff. Uh, tomorrow we have our show with Ben Doherty, Unscripted Uncensored 14, which is a really good one, particularly for, for fight fans, boxing fans. And uh, Friday, live, The Boot and the Limp, 7pm, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch and Twitter. Myself and stand-up comedian Barry Phillips break down the world in an X-rated fashion. Uh, it's not one for the light, uh, for the easily offended, shall we say. Uh, if you don't like swearing, maybe skip that one out. If you don't mind it, then come join us for a for a giggle. Danny, thank you very much, my friend. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Shy, and thank you, listeners, for for listening in again. And um, let's do it all again next week. Oh, I nearly forgot. Uh, last week's show uh, was the most viewed show that we've ever had. Uh, oh, wow, that's fantastic. We hit like a thousand views or something. And, sure, um, sure. The downloads have been progressively going up each week anyway. Um, but I think before that, our show, I think the most watched was like a, a couple of hundred views because um, we do tend to get more audio listeners than video for this series. Um, mm. However, last week, something something in there uh, certainly caught mm. people's caught people's attention. Mm. So hopefully the, yeah. a nice majority uh, so, of those will come back. You know, you know what it is? We're not the best looking guys in the world. That's the problem with it. Yes, they just want to hear us instead. Of, they want to hear my, my dulcet Welsh tones, but they don't want to see my face. And uh, that's it. There we go. And you've been mm. punched in the face too many times. <laughs> well, I've got an excuse. What's yours? Yeah, I've been, I haven't been at my house for six weeks, so that's what my excuse is. Um, <clears throat> guys, thank you. Danny, thank you. Um, um, we'll see you. Next week, defending champion, welcome Danny Sports Social Podcast Network.